All right, well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, those of you at home, hope you're all doing well, that you're staying healthy. Uh, well, I am really excited for today. I'm really excited for this message. We are closing out our vision series today, which means that I am not preaching next Sunday. Thank goodness. Uh, I've really enjoyed the series. Uh, as I shared in the beginning, uh, this is just an area of passion uh, for me, and it's been uh, really fun, really gratifying to journey through it with you all. But I'm definitely ready for a couple weeks off from preaching. So this is a picture of Switzerland. Switzerland. There we go. This is a picture of Switzerland. For Alyssa and I, uh, this is the number one item on our bucket list. Uh, we love to travel. We love trees and nature, just being outside. We love mountains. We love rivers. And so of all the places that we want to go someday, this is at the top of the list. And, you know, we spend time every once in a while just kind of talking and thinking about how much fun it's going to be to go there. You know, we look forward to uh, all of the lakes and rivers we're going to look at. We look at pictures of different places in Switzerland. We talk about the different activities we're going to be able to do and just generally kind of uh, think about how excited we are for this trip. But realistically, uh, it's going to be a long time before we get there. Uh, it's far away. It's a very expensive place to travel to. And uh, I have a little bit of anxiety about traveling outside of the uh, US, and so I kind of have to get over that. But we're basically talking about 10, 20, maybe even 25 to 30 years before we actually get there. So while it's exciting to think about, we mostly think about Switzerland with kind of a sigh. Like, oh, someday, someday. And you know, we know that Switzerland is a real place. It's fun to uh, think about. It's awesome to know that it's there for us to enjoy in the future. But for now, it's just kind of a dream. It doesn't make our lives now, our current reality, any better. It doesn't help me through my day or make my life more fun or beautiful right now. It's just kind of a thing, a, a cool thing that's out there somewhere. Well, this morning, as we close out our series, this vision series, we're going to be looking at the very end of the story, the end end. After God defeats sin and Satan, after the victory that we talked about last week. And we're going to look at the very last chapters of the story, and this is where we end up when everything is said and done. We're talking about eternity with God, what we think of as heaven. And I think if we're honest, you know, sometimes when we think about heaven, it can be a little bit like Switzerland. Awesome place. Can't wait to go. There's something to look forward to but not something that really speaks to our day-to-day -day lives. Maybe we're glad it's there, but it doesn't affect how we live today, how we live right now. And so this vision we're going to look at today is so powerful because as we look at the end, as we look at this eternity through the prophetic lens, we see that the end is meant to affect how we feel and how we live at this very moment. It impacts what it means to love God and to be his church in a profound way. 
So let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to be looking at a vision today from the book of Revelation. And for the other weeks of the series, we've been trying to kind of focus on these apocalyptic visions from the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and I really wanted to do that for this message as well. But as we focus on the end of the story, uh, I think Revelation is really the best place to turn to. This is the clearest, simplest version of the end. And so keep in mind, while Revelation is a similar genre, it's the same genre as these apocalyptic visions from the Old Testament, the context is different. This is the Apostle John writing to the New Testament church. He's writing about the divine reality, not just in light of who God is, not just in light of what God is doing, but the divine reality in light of Jesus, in light of the cross, his death and resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. This is quite literally the end of the story. Now remember from last week uh, in Revelation 19 and 20, God defeats Satan and evil. Uh, the wicked are judged and condemned. And now the Apostle John unpacks the ending of the story for the faithful, for those who endure. And here we get a sense of uh, what a biblical happy ending looks like. So, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. 
The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding each its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So, as far as dream destinations are concerned, this is about as good as it gets. And I think of all the visions that we've looked at so far, this one, I think, is, is the most simple in terms of what its main point is. It's pretty clear to us that John is showing us that this place is awesome. It's beautiful. Every image and every symbol speaks to something so comforting, something so hope-inspiring. It's obviously something to look forward to. But to fully appreciate the, the magnitude of this vision, we first need to go backwards a little bit. Actually, we need to go backwards a lot. We need to go back to the beginning of the story. See, remember that the beginning of this whole story of God and his people, this kingdom story, it all began in a garden. We have God creating the heavens and the earth and the land and the sea and the light and the dark. And then he creates man and woman and he places them in this garden. And the garden is really defined by one word. The Bible tells us that God saw that it was good. And we mean good in the purest, most perfect sense. There's wholeness and peace. There's no pain, no sadness, no insecurity. We're in a perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with other people. Every need and desire is met. This isn't just good in a vacuum. It is the good that we were created for. It's the good that we need to experience. And I think this is really the, the kingdom of God in its simplest form. This is what it looks like when God reigns perfectly over the world, over his creation. When God reigns perfectly, that means the essence of who he is, his character, his goodness, 
It radiates into every corner of creation and every part of our souls. So Revelation 1 and 2, this is the world, this is creation, this is life exactly as it should be. This is what it means that it was good. What happens? We know that Genesis 3 takes place, sin enters the picture, and all of a sudden, all of this good, this design, life as it should be, it's all distorted. It's all broken. No one is ever perfectly whole. No one is ever perfectly at peace. There's always a little bit of sadness or pain or insecurity that colors our existence. Our relationship with God is fractured and distorted. We experience hostility and insecurity and shame in our relationship with other people. And so all of this good, the world that it's supposed to be is broken. The perfect reign of God is disrupted. And it's important for us just to remember, because I think sometimes we forget that this really is the true problem of our story. This is the problem that God has been trying to solve throughout the entire biblical narrative. It's not simply that, you know, we're going to go to hell. It's not just that uh, there's evil and pain. It's not just that sin is destructive. Ultimately, the problem is God's perfect reign has been broken and this good has been lost. The garden has been lost. And this beginning helps us to understand why the ending is so good and why the story ending this way is so important. Because God isn't just telling us that heaven, that our end, that where we're headed, that it's going to be super awesome, although it is. What God is really showing us, the heart of this vision is God telling us that he is restoring what has been lost. He's rebuilding what was broken. Notice how clearly this vision connects the end with the beginning. In verse 1, John opens the vision with this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he's referencing, he's quoting from a prophecy in Isaiah where the prophet tells Israel of this future coming hope way down the line. And he says, see, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. And both John and Isaiah are pointing to the opening words of the story. How we all know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So John is taking us back to the beginning, back to the garden. God God is renewing and restoring this good creation of Genesis 1. Now when we look at this passage, there's some debate about exactly what God is doing here with the new heavens and new earth. There are some who think that uh, the old heaven and old earth will be destroyed and replaced by a a new one. And there are others who believe that it's simply going to be transformed, that God will take what is broken and fix it and, and, and change it. But ultimately, the takeaway is the same for either case. The idea here is that God is in some way renewing and restoring this world. He's renewing and restoring our world. What's important to recognize is that God isn't giving up on his planet Earth project. So he's not transporting us to some faraway dimension or plane of existence. We're not uh, floating up to the clouds or going to some different planet. Instead, God is simply finishing what he started 
in Genesis 1. Or as he puts it so perfectly in verse 5, I am making everything new. I am restoring what's broken. I am recreating this good that I started in Genesis. Uh, this is a picture of my son Grayson's baby blanket. Uh, it has definitely seen better days. So Gray is seven, but he still loves this blanket. He sleeps with it. He keeps it around. He takes it where he goes. And it's, this is actually just half of the blanket because it's literally ripped in half, and this is what's left. And really, it's almost disintegrating at this point. You know, it's super thin. It's dirty. It's gross. And every time it falls apart a little bit more, it kind of breaks your heart because he gets really sad because he loves this thing. And so we'll do whatever we can to fix it, right? At, some, at one point, I think Alyssa had sewed pieces of it together, but that didn't last long. Uh, so I just took the two pieces and tied them into a knot, and so there was a knot in the middle of this blanket, but that didn't work. And so I think we basically just held on to the biggest part of the blanket. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of beyond repair. And if you ask Grayson what he wants, what he would want, it's not a new blanket. He has new blankets. He has other blankets. But what he would want is this blanket, the perfect version of it. He would want it to still be his blanket, to have the same smell, the same feel, the same softness, exactly how he knows it to be, but just not broken, not tearing apart that this blanket, exactly as it is, would be made whole. And in a way, this is what God wants to do. He's saying, I made the best possible version of this world for you in the beginning. And yes, it's been distorted. Yes, it's falling apart. But I'm not going to throw it out and make you the best possible substitute. I'm going to take yours, and I'm going to make it new again. And in chapter 22, God makes this theme as obvious as possible. At the climax of this whole heavens and earth vision, we go back to the garden. We see a new Eden. We literally go back to Genesis 2. And everything that was broken is made whole. All of that good that we talked about is restored in full. Think about all these different things that we see in this vision. At the heart of it is God's presence felt perfectly. God dwells with us. He's our God. We're his people. We know him, serve him, actually see his face. We're in perfect relationship with other people. There's no shame. There's no deceit. There's no insecurity. We're in perfect relationship with the rest of creation. We see that every need is met, every desire fulfilled. And I think sometimes it's kind of easy to take for granted just how great this is. It's not just kind of this like great in a spiritual sense, like, hey, it's going to be really good. Heaven is awesome because God is there. And even though maybe that doesn't sound that great, trust me, it will be really great because to be in the presence of God is great. And that's true, but there's so much more than that because it's good in a way that makes sense to us. God is showing us a world that we can see and touch and taste and feel. The taste of our favorite fruit and foods. The warmth and light of God's glory like the sun. The feeling of perfect relationships with no fear, 
No insecurity, no anxiety. There's a beautiful river at the center of everything that we can drink from, swim in, delight in. The perfect presence and reign of God isn't just sitting in a room somewhere and just feeling happy because God is there. It's living in the glorious blessing of a God who knows who we are, who knows what we need, who knows what brings us joy and fulfillment. This is the God who created beauty, food and drink, fun, friendship, love. And this is what we were created to experience at the beginning of the garden. And that's what God brings us back to here in the restored version. And I don't want to gloss over this point. I think God really wants us to be excited about this, to long for this. One of the really important parts we talked about last week of these end times visions is God wants us to see that it's worth it so we endure. So that we are making sure to be on the right team so that we experience this vision through faithfulness. And this morning, honestly, maybe you just need to sit and remember that God loves you. And God is preparing this good for you. Maybe you need to remember and see that Jesus died on the cross and experienced the exact opposite of this so that you could have it to the fullest. I do think it can be easy for us to forget sometimes how good God is, how good his blessing is, how much good there is in his presence and perfect reign. And if that's where you're at this morning, that's awesome. Hold on to that. That's a beautiful thing to take away from this passage. But I don't want to stop there because I, I also think there's an important detail we need to recognize. And I think John and the biblical writers really want us to see. And that's that God is already restoring. God has already begun this work of renewing, making new, bringing this vision, this reality into our world. And he's doing it through Jesus and his spirit, and he's doing it through the church. In Mark 1.14, as Jesus begins his public ministry, as he steps onto the scene, he describes the good news of his coming this way. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Jesus says that in some sense, the kingdom, God's perfect reign, is arriving in his person. The good that we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 21, that it's coming into the world now in him. And then he goes out and he does a bunch of stuff that gives people a glimpse of what the kingdom is like. So he goes out and he heals the sick, brings wholeness to the broken, helps the poor, reaches out to the lost, has dinner with sinners, loves people. In Matthew 6, he tells his followers, hey, if you're going to pray, pray for this. Pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be the, your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying when we pray, we should pray, God, bring this reality, Genesis 1, Revelation 21, make it a reality here on earth right now. See, in Jesus, this 
vision of the kingdom of God's perfect reign, of God's goodness, is not just a future reality. It's not just something to look forward to. It's something that began in him, in his mission, in his life, in his teaching, in his death, in his resurrection. And that means that this vision isn't just a beautiful thing to look forward to. It's something that is breaking into our world right now. This kind of goodness and beauty and hope and restoration is breaking through in the person of Jesus. Uh, right now, my, my daughter Kaya and I are uh, kind of reading uh, this book together. It's one of my favorite childhood books. A lot of you have read it, The, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you're not familiar with it, it's kind of an allegory for this battle between God and Satan. And it really kind of highlights the importance of the crucifixion, of Jesus' death. But in the book, there's this evil witch, and she casts a spell over the land of Narnia. And it's the worst kind of spell because it's always winter, but like the worst parts of winter. It's, it's cold and frigid and barren. There's no life. There's no green. Everything's frozen. And not only is it winter, but it's winter and there's no Christmas. So it's all the worst parts about winter without the very best part about winter. And one of my favorite parts in the book is about halfway through. Because at this point, Aslan, this lion, who's kind of the Christ figure in the book, enters the story. And the book says that Aslan is on the move. And when that happens, the world just begins to change. The snow begins to melt a little bit. Plants begin to break through. Green begins to appear in the world again. And at some point, Father Christmas, Santa Claus himself, actually shows up and gives our main characters some presents. And at this point in the story, what we're meant to see is that, you know, the, the witch's spell isn't broken yet. But spring and summer is breaking through. They're experiencing the promise of Aslan's victory in the snow melting and these flowers blooming. This is what the Bible tells us is happening in Jesus. Yes, the world is still messed up. Yes, sin is still a powerful force. The kingdom hasn't come yet. But it's breaking through. The garden is breaking through. Here's a more tangible way to, to think about it. Let's say that this week uh, I decide to, to cook a, a pork shoulder, some pulled pork in, in my smoker. This is my absolute favorite thing to cook. So I go out, buy a nice cut of meat, get some apple wood and some pecan wood and some nice charcoal. I wake up in the morning, put it on my smoker to kind of get it going. And I'm super excited. I'm really looking forward to this amazing dinner. But here's the thing. This is about a 10 to 12 hour process. It takes about 10 to 12 hours of low heat and smoke to get it cooked. And so when I start this in the morning, I've got a long way to go before dinner. It's a long wait ahead. What happens is within a few hours, I can walk outside and I can smell that meat cooking. I can smell that sweet apple wood beginning to give off its fragrance. I can smell the, the smell of the, the pork. And so even though I can't eat it yet, the reality of dinner is breaking through 
into my afternoon. It's starting to break into my house. My, my back door doesn't shut all the way, so even inside I'm starting to smell that dinner, and it gives me a glimpse of the goodness that's ahead. It's enticing. It makes me excited for dinner. It makes me want to sit down at that table come dinner time. And this really is at the heart of how we view the end times, this idea of already but not yet. Dinner is not on the table quite yet, but we're already starting to experience that aroma, that fragrance, that it's coming. And so we can look at the world around us, and even though it doesn't look this way, even though there's still sin, even though, so, though there's still brokenness, we know that God is renewing, God is restoring, that God is on the move. And so what that means is that for us to be followers of Jesus, for us to proclaim the kingdom of God, for us to be the church, means that we have to understand our role in this story. That as God works towards this end and as God begins to have it break through into our world today, we're simply called to participate in that restoration, participate in that breaking through, to partner with God in his work of restoring and renewing and bringing wholeness and peace and joy and beauty and love. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean that we make this restoration happen. It's not saying that if the church works hard enough, then Revelation and Re Revelation 21 and 22 will take place and we're responsible now. Ultimately, God is still responsible. It's only going to happen by his power and his victory. But what it means is that we can take part in this because it's what God is doing, because this is the part of the story that we're in, and this is what we're called to do as his people. One of, uh, I think, the best books that I've read about just Christianity and faith generally in, in the past couple of years is a book called The Next Christians by Gabe Lyons. And he talks a lot about the importance of restoration for the church. And in it, he says this. When you put restoration back into the story, instantly you've created millions of jobs for all the unemployed and bored Christians in the church, jobs they can get excited about. Now there's work to do for people who want to make the world a better place in the meantime. Instead of simply waiting for God to unveil the new heaven and new earth, the rest of us can give the world a taste of what God's kingdom is all about, building up, repairing brokenness, showing mercy, reinstating hope, and generally just adding value. In this expanded model, everyone plays an essential role. The bottom line is this. The next wave of Christian engagement seems inherently linked to the idea of restoration. The people who are shaping this movement believe with all their hearts that God is in the restoration business. Not just in the afterlife, but here on earth as well. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. They consider restoration to be God's trademark, and they want to make it a central theme of the Christian faith again. The vision that we see in Revelation 21 and 22, it's not just something that we hope for in the future, it's something that we do in the present to create gardens wherever we are, 
to create these little spaces of God's goodness, God's love, God's hope in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our church, and in the world around us. To give people a glimpse, just a look, a taste, an aroma of who God is and what he's about. To make people excited about the God who is breaking through. To make them want to sit down at the table and enjoy the meal that's coming. And that ultimately is the job of the church. That's what we were created for. That's why we're here today. It's to create this in the world around us. Uh, I'm not a, a huge art person, but my favorite painting is uh, Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. And one of the reasons why I like this painting is that it's one of the only paintings that I can, I know the name of. <laughs> but I also think Van Gogh was a, was a fascinating person. According to some books that I've read, he was a firm believer in, in Jesus. But he was one of the church's harshest critics. And so in this painting, he depicts the, the, the bulk of the painting as this, this beautiful night showing us who God is, a picture of his infinite love, his light, his beauty. In a way, it's kind of a picture of the kingdom. And what you see is, is much of the earth is a contrast uh, to the light in the sky. It's a much darker place. But Van Gogh believed that God's light and love could be and should be reflected in the world around us. And so you see little lights uh, throughout the, the world below. And he believed that people could experience God's light and God's love through things like kindness, generosity, little ways that we could bless and love other people. But the one building where there's no light in the city is the church. And he believed that somehow amidst all of the activity, all of the ritual, that the church had lost sight of really the one thing that it was supposed to do, the thing that it could do better than anything else in the world to give people a glimpse of this light and goodness of God. And I don't mean to share this with the same kind of critical spirit of Van Gogh, but I do mean it as a reminder that if the church is going to be known for anything, it should be known for being a glimpse of this kingdom up above. And if things in this world really can reflect God's goodness, if we really can experience God's light and love and kingdom now, then we as the church, we as God's people should do this better than anyone. We should be a people who bring restoration and beauty and hope, who add value, as Lyons said. And so as we close this vision series, as we think about the unseen divine reality, all the things that we've learned so far, the reality of God's sovereignty and victory in light of the destructiveness of sin, the power of evil in our world, as we think about how these themes all fit together, I think these are fitting words to end on. Go be a taste of goodness the goodness of the garden in this sinful world. Go be a glimpse of God's 
kingdom, of the light of God in the darkness. Or to put it simply, go be the church because the world needs us. Let's pray.